0: It is such an incredible blessing for us to be able to gather here in this country. There are many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world today that are in underground churches. They sing without making a voice. They only move their lips. And here we can gather, at least for now, we can gather freely and and sing and pray and read God's word and proclaim the gospel. Um, With that Simple grace, I pray that when we come here, we realize the incredible blessings that have been poured out on us, that we can do this, and we would do it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That when we come and we sing, I mean, I don't know how often you sing, I sing throughout the whole week, but it's rare that I get to sing with a group of people, or maybe it's just rare that a group of people want to sing with me. Either way, I love coming and singing with you, and God rejoices in the joyful sound that we make to Him. I pray that when you gather here and we are reading scripture and we're praying to God, that you're not a spectator, but you're hearing God speak and you're participating in the prayers. This is a corporate worship service, and we gather to worship God together. And so as we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2, we will continue in our corporate worship service by seeing the gospel of grace revealed in the Old Testament in the narrative of 1 Samuel. And we will do that this morning by looking at Eli's family and his sons and Samuel as well as he is raised up in the Lord. We started our series last week. If you were not here, you can always listen to the sermons online. But this is a story, so there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we like to run that narrative out. Last week we started in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and we saw God intervening with a barren woman by the name of Hannah. And we see her coming before the Lord, coming before the tabernacle. And she petitions God that to give her relief, to open up her barren womb and give her a son. And he answers her prayer. And then in the prayer that, you, that she made, as we know from last week, last week, she made a vow. She said, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And at the age of two or three, after he was weaned, she brought him back to the temple to be raised by the Lord under the supervision of Eli. And this is where our story resumes. We're told in verse 21 of chapter 2 that Samuel is a young man growing in the presence of the Lord. And so we have, throughout the next couple of weeks and throughout the next few chapters, we see Samuel growing in wisdom and knowledge and love, very much like our Lord is described in, in the Gospel of Luke. And we see simultaneously Eli's biological sons, Hophni and Phinehas, And we see their wickedness. And as it says in scripture, their worthlessness. And the two are juxtaposed. Now when we hear a narrative like this, it is not uncommon for believers to write themselves into the good part. You'll hear Samuel and say, well I'm Samuel. And you'll hear about Hophni and Phinehas and you'll say, well I'm not those guys. And what I want us to hear is that we're both. We should see ourselves, if you're in Christ, then you're both. And you'll see where you started, and you'll see where you are now in Christ by his grace and mercy. And so let's look at these parallel lives, Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel, and then of course Christ, that we might hear the gospel of grace this morning and find our lives as men, women, and children worthy of this calling, living in the power of the gospel of grace. Three things I want to look at this morning. One, the fraudulent priesthood. The fraudulent priesthood, number two, a priestless people. And number three, the promised priesthood. I did not plan all the Ps, but they're there, so they're there. I don't think like that. They just come out like that sometimes. There's nothing tricky about it. It's not even a mnemonic device to help you remember. Um, It's just what's working for this sermon. So the fraudulent priesthood. We resume our story with a very disturbing scene. We're at the tabernacle. Um, There's a description of a family that is attempting to worship God in a sacrificial meal. And the priests or the servants of the priests come along and they take this three-pronged fork in their hand and they stab it into the pot and they take out meat from the sacrificial meal that the worshipers were enjoying as a family before the living God. And this was their act of worship. We're told in verse 14 that all that the fork brought up Chapter 2, verse 14, all that the fort brought up, the priest would take for himself. He was stealing the priests and the servants of the priests were stealing the sacrificial meat that had been given up to God and now being enjoyed by the family in a sacrificial meal after the sacrifice itself. All of this after we understand that the priest had already be, had been given the breast and the right leg according to Leviticus chapter 7. So, the priests had already received their allotted portion of the sacrifice. Then you had the portion that was a burnt offering to God. And then you had the portion that was to be enjoyed by the family. They were stealing that. In some cases, we're told that they wouldn't even wait for the fat to be ver- burned off. In Leviticus chapter 3, they were told there's a procedure to this sacrificial practice. One of which was the fat was to be burned off in honor to God. But the priest would come by and they say, we want the meat right now. And if, the, if they would object to it, well, I'll read to you. Look at verse 16. When the priest would demand to have the uncooked portions for themselves, the worshiper would say to them, let us burn the fat first. The, the, the worshiper knows better than the priest. Let us burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. And the priest would say, no, you must give it now. If not, I will take it by force. This is in the house of the Lord. The priests had become mafia-like thugs. Threatening to beat the worshiper if they did not surrender the meat when asked. The situation in the tabernacle of the Lord was most grievous. This was to be a holy place. This was to be a place where families would come and offer sacrifices to the Lord. This was to be a place of prayer. This was to be a place of thanksgiving and praise and honor being given unto God. And it had become a place of thievery. The priesthood had fallen and we're told that the sin in verse 17, look at verse 17, that the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. It was very great for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. That word contempt in the Hebrew, it comes from a root word which means to scorn or despise. They took the sacrifice that was to be given unto God and they scorned it and they despised it. Those who were worshipping, the families who gathered, they knew that the process that was established in Scripture, in Leviticus, was important and they wanted to follow it. And they knew that if they did not, they believed in their hearts it would not be effectual. And so the priests were disrupting the ability of man to come before God and worship Him rightly. And all of this is so grievous. It's so grievous that it could incite a holy God to action. But we're told that it gets worse. In addition to Hophni and Phinehas disrupting the very sacrificial practice, the means by which people worship the holy God, they were engaged in grievous moral offenses as well. All the people heard that Hophni and Phinehas were engaged in in sexual relations with the women who were serving in the tabernacle. Serving God according to Exodus chapter 38 verse 8. All the people of Israel were talking about what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. Verse 22 of Samuel 2. Lying with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. Women that were called by God to come in and to engage in the sacrificial process. To minister at the the door of the tabernacle. Were being used as sex objects. They were being devoured by Eli's sons. In other words, the tabernacle had been turned into a brothel, a house of prostitution, a place of committing and glorifying sin rather than confessing and turning from it and receiving forgiveness from God. And all of Israel was suffering under the hands of these arrogant, corrupt men who called themselves priests. We're told in 1 Samuel 2.12 that they were worthless and they did not know the Lord. In other words, they were bogus priests. They weren't real priests. They may have had the title, they may have worn the clothes, they may have assumed the authority and engaged in the process, but they did not know God. A priest must know God. The responsibility, the primary responsibility of the priesthood was to intercede before God for man. But how can a priest intercede before God if he doesn't know God? Now that's different than knowing about God. They knew about God. They knew the laws of God. They even knew that what they were doing was wrong. They understood the sacrificial practice of God. But they did not know God personally. They did not know God as their king. They did not know God as their savior. They knew about him, but they did not know him. That means they did not worship him. That means they did not submit to him. Now, before we turn in our own self-righteousness and are so quick to condemn Hophni and Phinehas, just like many of us were quick to condemn Penina last week, before we do that, we must remember, according to the Bible, that we all started in that same condemned place, We all started as false priests, as bogus priests. Because not one of us knew the Lord before God made himself known to us in Christ. We all entered the world not knowing the Lord. Many of us grew up not knowing the Lord. and It was by his grace that he came to us and he revealed himself to us through Christ. And that means, saints, that apart from Christ apart from the love that god has already poured out on you in christ all of us will stand before god as worthless as well we will be worthless before a holy god in unable to worship god rightly unable to do what we were created to do which was to know god and to love god and to serve god and to worship god now and forever in fact in our fallen state we do just the opposite if you're in Christ then you know all too well you know as well as I do that before you came to a saving grace in Christ how you engaged in stealing what was rightly belonged to God time money resources your gifts and your talents that which belonged to the Lord which he gave you which to to be ascribed back to him for his glory you took that I took that and I used it for my own glory my own power if you're in Christ then you know all too well how often your life was a brothel against God. How often we committed adultery in our mind and with our hands as we prostituted ourselves to idol after idol. You say, well, I've never, I've never done that physically, but we've done that spiritually. We've committed idolatry and adultery with money and with power and with position in our jobs and with our wives and our husbands and our children and even within the context of the church, even with the context of ministry, people making idols of things other than God And we sit and we condemn these men thinking ourselves better, more civilized, more spiritually mature. But the Bible says that deep down we all know, we all know that apart from Christ, we are just like Hophni and we're just like Phineas. In fact, I go so far as to say I know myself well enough to say they were better than I. We came into this world not knowing God. We exercise freely by our own choice and our own desire, the sins that abound in our own heart, every one of us, apart from Christ, is at enmity with God, living lives that know He exists, but not knowing Him personally as Savior, refusing to submit to His word with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, this is the common problem of mankind. Hophni and Phineas are not unusual. That is the common problem of mankind. Not knowing God. Rebelling against God. Now for thousands who have gathered in churches this morning across the world, I believe the lives of Hophni and Phinehas resonate even more deeply. Most people outside the church, if you press them, do you know the God of the Bible personally? Do you know the God of the Bible as They will say, no, I don't. If you press them. Most people say they know God, but if you press them on the God of Scripture, they will say, I do not know. Most people in the church will say, I do know God. They will say that. But how many within the church, how many people this day will enter the walls of a church this day as they have Sunday after Sunday for years or decades disguised as priests? Hobni and Phineas were inside the tabernacle. They were inside the body of God. How many entered a church today disguised as priests? Wearing the right clothes? Using all the right Christianese? participating in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, engaging in the worship service through prayer and song and the reading of the word. How many have entered today saying, I am a priest of God only to leave this holy gathering and even this afternoon go back to a life of willful sin, of unholy living, prostituting ourselves, with the idols of the culture. How many of us, how many have gathered today claiming to be priests of God when in actuality they are no different than Hophni and Phinehas? Husbands not loving their wives as Christ loves the church. Sacrificially, Selflessly. Wives not submitting to their husbands and striving in our culture to be heads of their own house. Dismantling God's ordained plan for the family. How many of us gather today, how many children will gather today claiming Christ and then leave this place in complete rebellion to their parents? Submitting themselves to the culture. How many men worship God, claim God, but do not live like men. Men being feminized by the culture willingly and actively. How many women will gather in in a church this Sunday and hear the gospel proclaimed and hear the word of God and maybe even say amen, but not live like a godly woman striving desperately to be in control or in power. Parents refusing to parent their children, making idols out of their children. And submitting to them. Allowing their children. Godly parents professing Christ. Claiming to be a priest. Allowing their children to tell them when they're going to eat. And how long they will play at the park. And when they're going to go to bed. I was at McDonald's last week. And one of my sons ran inside to get a drink. And there was a father next to me who was struggling violently with a two year old. Who refused to get into his car seat. So the father engaged in negotiation and bribery with the two-year-old. If you don't get in your car seat, he said, we're not coming back here again to play in the play area. If you don't get into your car seat right now, no more Happy Meals. If you get into your car seat, I'll put a movie on for you on the way home. If you don't get into your car seat, your mother's going to be very upset with you. Of course mom is in the front seat ferociously texting away oblivious to the rebellion taking place in the back seat i don't think she was going to be terribly upset to live life so contrary to god's created order contrary to his revealed word for those who claim christ who claim priesthood is an abomination And for the professing Christian who says, I know Christ, I love Christ, I go to church faithfully to leave this place and willfully and consciously live an habitual unholy life. Well, we looked at that in 1 John. Lives of willful disobedience, not being receptive to teaching, not being receptive to rebuke or correction or training in righteousness. Then we're no different than Hophni and Phinehas. We're faking it too. We can't claim, well, we were here From 10.30 to noon, we can't make that claim and therefore, God calls us to holy living. Sunday morning, Monday morning, Monday night. How often do we read a passage like this and we think of the Hophni and Phinehas as those outside the church walls and yet they were inside the church. Some of you will say, well this is a hard thing to hear. This is not my teaching. This is what the Bible says. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Some of you know this well. Verses 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who says, Lord, Lord, to God? Those inside the church. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus will say, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. So all those outside the church and many inside the church find themselves in dire straits, in rebellion, just like Hophni and Phineas, refusing to heed the Father's warning to repent and follow Christ. The result, look at verse 34. What was the result of Hophni and Phinehas refusing to hear Eli's warning? What was it? God says that he will be putting Hophni and Phinehas to death on the same day. This is a physical death, this is a spiritual death, and we know that from chapter 3. So the first picture we get is that of a fraudulent priesthood, and by God's grace, we won't ride ourselves out of that quickly. But where does that leave us? And where does that leave us if we have a fraudulent priesthood? Look at point number two. A priestless people. A priestless people. Look at verse 27. In verse 27, we're told that a man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord. So the, the corporate worship at Shiloh was was in shambles. The sacrificial system was in shambles. The very priests who were supposed to be interceding before God for man were engaged in sexual relations with the women serving in the temple. It was a mess. And so what does God do? God sends a prophet to Eli. We don't know the prophet's name. It doesn't tell us where he came from. But boy, did he have a word for Eli and his family. He comes to Eli. And he comes and he tells them In light of the many blessings that have been poured out on you, your family, descending from Aaron as a Levite, able to participate in this great honor of the worship of the living God. He says, in light of all these blessings, Eli, look at verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? By fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel. God comes to Eli and he says, You know, Eli, in light of what I have done for you, in light of what you have enjoyed as a family in the great Levitical priesthood descending from Aaron, and this is what you're going to do, this is how you're going to treat my sacrificial process, this is how you're going to treat those coming to worship me in spirit and truth. And here we have the central charge against Eli and his family. Participation and negligence. And I want us to look at Eli. Eli may not have been complicit in actually taking the meat. Eli may not have gone around and stuck his three-pronged fork into the pot and drawing out meat for himself. But he did eat it. He enjoyed it. Look at verse 29. God, the prophet says, "'Fattening yourselves.'" Eli's included in this. He didn't say your sons were fattening themselves. He says fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people. In other words, Eli was telling his sons to stop. This is not right. And then he said, well, what do you got? No, don't take the meat, but well, what kind of meat do you have? And he would eat from the same stolen meat that his sons were eating. In other words, he'd become a hypocrite before God and before his own sons. Years ago, there was a brother in Christ that was struggling with his wife uh, attending church, being part of the body. She was a member as well, and um, he would encourage her, he would admonish her, and he'd say, listen, it is, it is right for us to be an active, vibrant member of the local body. And he'd bring, you know, Hebrews 10, 25, he said, it's not right to forsake the gathering of the saints. And he'd bring her the word of God, and he'd pray for her, and she, she just struggled coming, struggled being a part. And then he started... Down that path. And it was sporadic at first, a Sunday here, a Sunday there, then every other Sunday, and then two or three Sundays in a row, and then he started, and yet he was still trying to tell his wife, it's wrong to forsake the gathering of the saints, and he himself was forsaking the gathering of the saints. He became a hypocrite. So grievous here before God that out of the same mouth that Eli rebuked his sons, he filled his belly with stolen meat amazing but it gets worse even here it gets worse Eli's greater sin was negligence allowing his sons to corrupt the sacrificial system allowing his sons knowing that his sons were engaging in a grievous immoral behavior before God with women who had come to the tabernacle to serve God he knew this and he did nothing to stop it He warned them, verses 23 and 24, he warns them. He tells them to stop, but he doesn't make them stop. You say, well, what could he do? What could he do? He could have cast them out of the tabernacle. He could have put God first above his own children. He could have taken seriously God's call for holiness. In other words, he had revealed himself as a fraud as well. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. As high priest, he took no action to stop his sons from their wickedness. He was being a respecter of man rather than honoring God first. He put family blood. Now listen, saints. We are not exempt from this. He put family first, not God Even after Eli had heard that all of Israel was made aware of what his sons were doing, he still didn't stop him. I mean, you think the shame would have been enough that all of Israel now knew what his sons were doing for him to put a stop to it. But still, he was going to be a respecter of his children. He allowed their sins before God and man to continue. And that's why God said to him through the prophet in verse 29, You honor your sons above me. So we find Eli engaged in grievous sins of commission, contempt of the sacrificial system, eating the meat from the sacrifices that were being stolen by his sons. We see him engaged in a grievous sin of omission by neglecting to do something about the wicked behavior of his sons. And the worst part here is the Bible doesn't tell us, but we understand that he did know God. It says of Hophni and Phineas, did, they didn't know God. But if, if Eli did know God and understood this, then he, he was culpable for even greater sin because he knew what they were doing was wrong and he should have stopped them. Instead, he became very much like the father that we heard at McDonald's. No different. Older men, yes, not trying to put a child in a car seat. You can almost hear Eli, saying, Hophni, if you don't stop taking that meat out of the pots of those people trying to worship God, I'm going to take away your incense. That's the second time I've told you. Phineas, if you don't stop immediately taking that meat before they burn off that fat, I'm taking away your priestly robe. Hophni, this is the last time, this is the last time I'm warning you, you leave those women alone or else. And then you can hear the response, or else what, Dad? Or else What? Because you've told us this before and you've done nothing. You've been aware of it and you've done nothing. All of Israel knows about it and you've done nothing. What are you going to do now, Dad? Parents with children. Grandparents with grandchildren. Wives with husbands. Husbands with wives. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen with all your ears, please. We are not exempt from sins of omission. Sins against the living God That we engage in by simply doing nothing. By saying nothing. By being nice to people. I'm not saying not to be nice to people. But if you are nice to people in the midst of known sin. And you do not love a brother or sister. A husband or wife or a child to the cross of Christ. Then you're hating them. We, We say things like, well I don't want to interfere. I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. I don't want to make an enemy. And what we're really saying is we want everybody to like us. We want to be at peace with everyone, even at the expense of righteousness. Dale Davis writes this in his commentary. It's pointed. He says, How easy it is to practice a gutless compassion that never wants to offend anyone. That equates niceness with love and thereby ignores God's law and essentially despises His holiness. Listen to this. He says, we do not necessarily seek God's honor when we spare human feelings. We do not necessarily seek God's honor when we spare human feelings. My beloved, God hates cowardice in his kingdom. As much as he hates the sin that we ought to be addressing, it's not loving if you remain silent in in the presence of known sin. That's not love for your brother, that's hatred for your brother. That's not love for a sister, that's self-love. And this is so pervasive in the culture, so pervasive. I don't even want to talk about it. You just look and you see things that we know that are wrong, people just remain silent or they actually condone it. But it's equally it's equally pervasive in the church today. Where psycho babble terms, pseudo pseudo Christian psychology has made an absolute mess of things where we used to take the Bible and we'd identify a sin and the Bible would say, repent of that sin and turn and we'd instruct someone on how to do that and we'd bring the word of God to that person on how to do it. We'd call them to it with great urgency. Repent. And then that person would repent and they would turn from the sin and they would receive the glorious blessings of mercy and grace that would come from the cross of Christ. And we would then be witness to that, of God forgiving them and enabling them to turn and being filled with His grace. And we'd see that. And now, now, sin has been, has been placated and we attach terms to it. And they are they are ridiculous terms. We, we call sin habitual dysfunction, clinical depression, delayed adolescence, unconscious motivation, blah, blah, blah. Where is the mutual accountability? Where is it? Where is the striving together in righteousness? Where is the brother and sister coming along? Where is the parent to the child saying, that's not delayed adolescence, son. That's sin. The Bible says that's sin. Repent and turn from it. A young man recently from a Christian institution, which will go unnamed, was counseling a brother that the brother needs to go see a counselor. And the brother said, you know, so-and-so says, I need to go see a counselor. I said, this, this is from your brother who graduated from a Christian institution in Bible. So said, why didn't your brother just open the Bible? Why don't we just open the Bible? Where is our collective desire to become, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Saints, what Eli failed to do as high priest and father, God said, I will promise to do. Look at verse 30 in 1 Samuel 2. The prophet continues. He's still in the dialogue with Eli. The prophet says, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me. That was the promise. But he says, But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. For those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You can also translate that disdained. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength. He's talking to Eli and Eli's family. I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed upon Israel. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you, both of them shall die on the same day. And so God does not look lightly upon these priests contaminating the system of worship. He does not look lightly upon the adultery committed by these men. He does not look lightly upon Eli's sin of omission by knowing it's wrong, by knowing God and doing nothing. He brings judgment and grace. He brings judgment upon Eli and Eli's family and he brings grace to protect the people of Israel from being utterly destroyed by the sin. It's so glorious. God is essentially saying, if Hophni and Phinehas threaten to destroy my people, I will destroy them because he is God. In other words, we have judgment that is commingled with mercy and grace in this great prophetic utterance to Eli. So where does that leave us? We have a bogus priesthood and now we have a priestless people. But we know that cannot be the case. We know that we are part of that bogus priesthood and therefore we know how desperately we need a faithful priest. We need someone who will intercede before a holy God on our behalf. We know that. Without a priest, we're hopeless. Look at verse 25 in chapter 2. in in the midst of Eli's rebuke of his sons, he asks a most compelling question. Look at what he says. In verse 25, Eli says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against God, someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? And he's saying, "If, if man sins against man, God provides a mediator. He provides a judge to resolve that. But if If man sins against God, who can intercede? It's the consummate question. If we've sinned against a holy God, who will intercede for us? And if there is no more priesthood, what hope is there for man? God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his glory and he is jealous for his holiness. And he will punish every single sin. And you say, well, then how will anyone survive? Because I am a sinner. What are we to do when we realize, as David said in Psalm 50, 51 verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What do we do when we realize that every sin is vertical first? Every sin goes against God first. And therefore we need someone to intercede on our behalf for the sins we've committed against a holy God. Who can intercede for us? Will anyone intercede for us or will we end up Like Eli's house. Look at verse 11 and following. In Samuel chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 verses 11 and following. What was the the end of Eli's house? Verse 11 and following. Chapter 3. Then the Lord said to Samuel. So the Lord is dialoguing with Samuel. Behold I'm about to do a thing in Israel. At which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. There's the the sin of omission. Verse 14, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. What does that mean? No redemption. No redemption for Eli. No redemption for Eli's house. No sacrifice or offering would be sufficient to overcome those sins. So, how are we any better off? We certainly cannot say, well, I have not sinned to the degree that Eli did. I did not sin to the degree that Hophni or Phinehas did. Of course we have. We've already established that. That is the common plight of all mankind and for many who profess Christ in the church. So, what hope is there? If we have no priest, there is no priesthood, then what hope is there? Point number three the promised priesthood. The promised priesthood. What I love about the narrative in 1 Samuel and most of the narratives throughout the Old Testament is that human resistance and human rebellion will not thwart the will of God. God's purposes will be accomplished, God's will will be completed. No matter how hard we fight against his love, no matter how much we work against him in redeeming a people for himself and his glory, his purposes will go through. And that means that he will provide someone to intercede for us. That means that he will, through this great intercessor, make for himself a people, a holy priesthood of believers that will bring him honor and glory now and forever. That means that this state of Hothni and Phinehas and Eli and the, the fact that they will have no means of redemption does not stand for those in Christ today. That means there's great hope in this. Eli's sons are going to be killed by God in the same day. He says, that's how you'll know this prophecy was real. His family priest line will be cut off. They will not live to be very old. Longevity will be taken away and they're going to starve. But in the midst of this, God says, I'm going to do a great work and I'm going to make my, for myself a faithful priest and a faithful priesthood. Look at verse 35, 1 Samuel 2.35. God says through his prophet I will raise up for myself this is God talking I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now the quick easy interpretation is people say well that's Samuel that's Samuel that he's talking about. Unlikely but it, it can be but it's unlikely. Um, If you know 1 Kings chapter 2, we're told that Zadok would be the contemporary fulfillment of this particular prophecy. Zadok was the priest under David who became the high priest under Solomon. Remember this? Are you with me? When he he took down Abiathar, which Abiathar was the last line in the priestly line of of, um, Eli. In fact, I'll, I'll read to you here in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27, it says, The word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh had been fulfilled. Abiathar was taken out of office. And then Solomon took Zadok and made him high priest. In fact, he was the first high priest to serve in the first temple. And we see that his line goes all the way through Jehozadak at the fall of, of Judah in 586 to the Babylonians. And then... Well, you know this from Zechariah Who came back and served as priest in Zechariah Same line, it was Joshua Right, and then Joshua goes all the way down to the, to the Sadducees The Sadducees were known as, uh, as Zedekites So they were from the same line But there's a problem Because when the temple was destroyed The sacrificial practice was destroyed And the priesthood stopped At least during the Babylonian captivity So it didn't go on forever he said, well, but at least it was restored, right? Yes, but then what happened? It was restored and then again, it was destroyed in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. In other words, this promise of a priest forever did not last according to the line of Zadok. We need the foreverness of this prophecy if there's any hope for us. We can't have a high priest that dies with the destruction of the temple and that line end. We need a high priest now and forever. Look back at verse 35. God said, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. I do believe this prophecy in the contemporary sense was speaking to Zadok but the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is in Christ and the church. Where Eli failed, Jesus Christ would succeed in becoming the faithful priest of God. We know this from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we're told this. That we, the church, have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord. Jesus Christ fulfilled the role that Eli failed. Where Hophni and Phineas failed, God would make for himself a priesthood of believers who would serve him faithfully all his days. That is the church, the holy church, a people who would live and serve according to what is in the heart and mind of God. What did Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2.16? That we, God's people, God's priests, have the mind of Christ. In other words, this prophecy, its fulfillment, is in Christ as the high priest. And you, brothers and sisters in Christ, a priesthood of believers, a faithful priesthood of believers. That is his church. And it's we who will live in a sure house. And it's we who will, show, will go in and out before my anointed forever, that anointed being the Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ. The picture is a glorious picture. We see the catastrophic failure of Eli. We see the failure of his sons. We see the, the catastrophic failure of his sons, both in the sacrificial system and in their immoral behavior. And God says, what they did not do, I will do. Where Eli failed, I will be successful with Christ. And where Hopni and Phinehas failed, I will be successful with my church. The picture is glorious. It's you now. It's you now, Church. It's you priesthood of believers at this very moment having a high priest, Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of God and you here gathered this morning to worship him. It's that high priest interceding on your behalf every moment of every day. It's glorious. It's not the picture we have here at Shiloh which was grievous. It's glorious. Now some of you may be saying well how can that be? How can a wretched sinner like me be considered a priest of God. How can someone like me, and I know my sins, how could someone like me ever be called into a holy gathering? How could I ever have a title, faithful priest, when I know how unfaithful I am? I mean, part of this picture, we go, I understand Christ. Christ. I mean, I understand him fulfilling the role that Eli failed. I understand that, because Christ is perfect. Christ is holy. He lived a perfect life. But how could God call us faithful priests ever? The answer, of course, is the cross. The answer is found in the cross. Unlike Eli, unlike Eli who warned his children but did nothing to stop them. He did nothing to rectify the grievous sin they were engaged in. Jesus Christ came, and Jesus Christ warned us, and then He went to the cross to fix it. He didn't just say, here's the warning, repent or you'll die. He didn't just come and say, God's a holy God and you're sinners, and there's no hope. He came and warned us with many warnings, and then He said, I'm going to go to the cross to take care of it. I'm going to make things right. He acted upon His warning. By taking upon himself the power of sin and evil and death and Satan. In fact, we're told in Isaiah 53, prophesied centuries before Christ did this. Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this is how you become a priesthood of believers. By your sins being taken from you and placed on Christ. The Bible says that He bore our sins in His body. In His broken body and in His spilled blood. Christ took upon us our sins. Why? So that we could become a holy people. A royal priesthood. A people set apart to glorify God. There is no greater news than that. For fallen man. There's no greater news for us, those who identify with Hophni and Phineas and Panina well, than that news, that Christ would do that work. Just as the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt, in chapter 2, verse 17, by stabbing their three-pronged forks into the sacrificial meat, so too did the world treat God's sacrificial offering with contempt by nailing him to a cross. The word contempt, it fits here too. They scorned Christ, they despised Christ, they plunged their nails into his hands and into his feet and they plunged their sword into his side. Unlike Eli and his sons, instead of sinning against God and stealing the sacrificial meat, Jesus Christ became the offering himself. Instead of consuming people sexually like the wicked sons of Eli, Jesus Christ was consumed Himself, His broken body and His spilled blood. On the cross, Jesus Christ, our faithful High Priest, our sacrificial Lamb, He took the full wrath of God upon Himself for our sins. And like Hophni and like Phineas, He was put to death. But unlike Eli's sons, He did not stay there. He rose from the dead. Unlike Eli's sons who died physically and spiritually, Jesus Christ died, but he rose. On the third day, we know this. He rose again on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures. Why? To bring life, to bring restoration, to bring salvation to mankind. For all of us who say, well, I I am like Hophni, and I am like Phineas, and I know how wicked I am. He did that. He died on the cross, he was buried in the grave, and he rose again to bring life and hope to us. That our end might not be like Eli's household. Just the opposite. That our end would be life and resurrection in Christ. Jesus Christ died not only to save us from the ravages of sin and hell forever and ever, but to impart to us his holiness, his faithfulness, his glory, his life. So we become faithful priests, worshiping God as he's called us to, living as he's called us to, through the cross of Christ. God made the promise, I will call for myself a faithful priest, that is Christ. And then Christ calls us to be faithful priests as well. Do you struggle with that term? Those of you coming out of a liturgical background, you have visions of Catholic priests, you say, ah, don't call me a priest. There are bogus priests and there are real priests. If you are in Christ, you're a real priest. You're a priest of God. You gather here this morning to worship Him in spirit and truth. Your life is to be a living sacrifice to Him every moment of every day. This is such glorious news, saints. Jesus Christ... Serving as our high priest and dying as our sacrificial lamb to save sinners like you and me, to make us into a faith, faithful priesthood who would worship and honor God forever, it's glorious. So, what, 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 what's your right response to this? What do we, we say? That's, that's interesting news, Pastor. That's good news, I guess. That's, I don't want to end up like Hafni, and I don't want to be like Phineas, and I don't want to be like Eli. I guess this is good news. What do we do with this extraordinary news? What do we do with knowing that we have been enabled by Christ to live in a sure house forever and go in and out before the anointed one forever? In the presence of a holy God in God's house and then in the presence of the anointed one, Jesus Christ the Savior forever and ever. What do you do with this fantastic news? I'll give you a few and we'll close. One, a right fear of the Lord. This should bring about a right fear of God. Hophni and Phinehas did not fear the Lord. They entered into his tabernacle and they engaged in a most holy sacrificial system with contempt. They hated God. There was no fear of any kind. There was no fear of consequence. There wasn't even a fear of the people of Israel when they found out what they were doing. They continued in their immorality. Therein, their house is Hell. Their torment unceasing. Why? There was no fear of God before their eyes. So one, this should elicit a right fear of the Lord. Number two, if you know Christ and you've been called into the saving grace and you've been made a priest, number two, it should compel us to obedience in right worship. Obeying God in right worship. And I'm not just talking our corporate gatherings. The Bible prescribes how we are to worship God corporately, how we worship him here. I'm talking about our whole life as well. How you worship God on a daily basis. Hophni and Phinehas and Eli did not. How we serve and love one another. Right worship how we care for the needy that are in our midst that's right worship. How we share the gospel with the lost when we evangelize our neighbors and our coworkers and the stranger, that's right worship. How we take seriously our Lord when he said in Matthew 4:4 4, 4, man does not live upon bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's right worship. Saints, one thing I've noticed over the years is that you can go to church and you can be part of a Bible study and you can gather corporately and can pray but if you're not faithfully reading and consuming God's Word on a regular basis you're going to be lost. I've seen more people come into this church and do the corporate routine but they don't read their Bible, they don't pray they're not going to Christ and then Christ has come and boom, they're gone. Why? They're not feeding upon the Word of God. Christ says here, feed upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I dare say that many of say, I don't even know what every word is. I've never read the whole Bible. So how can I feed on that which I do not know? And how can I know that which I do not eat? And how am I expected to grow in Christ if I'm not eating His words? There's a reason that when we do communion, we take the body that represents Christ and we eat it. And we take the juice that represents His blood and we drink it. Christ said, You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Why? We must consume God's Word daily. Real fellowship with God by hearing Him talk to us daily. I have the great privilege of reading God's Word for many hours a day, and it's never enough. (laughs) I never think I never say to myself well you know you've eaten enough that's enough no more never I don't think for 10,000 lives could I not be satisfied could you not be satisfied on the word of God to hear God speak to you and to be nourished by that is there anybody here who would say I am satisfied I, I know everything I need to know I've heard everything God needs to say he need not talk to me anymore would anybody say that no one would say that and if you say it that means you don't know write worship daily of God Saints, if you do not read your Bible faithfully every day, and I'm not talking in a religious sense, because many do, I'm talking about in a disciplined sense, feeding on the word of God. If you don't, talk to me or one of the elders. Talk to a brother and sister in Christ. If you need help doing that, we can help. If you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one. We pine away because we don't have God speaking to us. We struggle being faithful priests of God because it's not His word That guides and directs our steps. So third. I want to give you another one here. That the work of Christ and grace that flows from the cross. Should produce in us a first love for God. A first love for God. Eli's most catastrophic sin of omission. Is that he loved his sons over God. He put his sons above his love for God. Saints, we love God because He first loved us. Your love for God must be first and foremost in everything. If you want to love husbands, you want to love your wives more, love God more. Wives, you want to love your husbands more, love God more. Love Him most. You want to be a better parent, love God most. He must be first. He cannot be co-captain of your heart. He must be sole proprietor of your heart. And then you can love, and then you can serve, and then you can worship. But if, if you are not loving God first then you're loving something else first. And whatever that something else, it's an idol. It's an idol. The last thing, and we'll close on this, that if there's a a right fear of God, if there's a right obedience and worship of God, if there's a right love for God first, then we will love one another rightly. We will love one another as God has commanded us. That means we won't steal from each other. You're not going to come into my house and try to take meat out of my freezer. You're not going to steal my time and steal my... You're not going to come and take things from me. Why? Because you love me. You'll be just the opposite. You will come and you'll bring me meat to put in my freezer. You'll be radically generous. Resources will flow to and fro, right? We won't commit adultery in our hearts. We won't commit adultery in our minds and with our hands. We won't use people... Adultery is using someone as an object. We will love people as those created in the image of God, saved and unsaved. We will care for people. We will care for the physical and spiritual and emotional needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll care for those in our neighborhood who are unsaved, who are hurting. We'll come alongside them. We'll minister to them. We'll bring them the word of God. We'll share the gospel of grace. Maybe we'll put meat in their freezer. We will pray for one another. We're priests. That means you can pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can intercede on their behalf. You can pray for people. Saints, I mean, do you pray? Do you really pray? You see, you're always talking about scripture and you're always talking about prayer. Why is that? They're vacant today. I mean, loving the Word of God, feeding upon the Word of God, and spending more time on our knees than lecturing. Fear, obedience, love for God, and love for one another. These are just some of the right responses that come from this incredible gospel narrative. These are just some. There are others, and you can discern that as you draw from the text yourself this week, as you go back and read it yourself and take from the Jewels, that are embedded there. The right response to this narrative, the right response of God engaging Eli and Hophni and Phinehas is not one of despair, uh, it's not. It's one of seeing God as holy, it's seeing us how we really are apart from Christ, which is wretched, which is ten times worse than Hophni and Phinehas, and then turning and seeing that God made for himself a faithful priest. And through that faithful priest, God has made many faithful priests in his church and rejoicing in that and then walking in it. Walking in it. Glorious power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn wicked men and wicked women like you and me into priests. It's fantastic. One day, The priesthood here and the priesthood throughout the world will be gathered together by God one day. And on that day, that high priest is going to come and he's going to come to his people. One day. All the strife, all the battles, all the struggle, all the hardship, one day. For some of us, not too far in the future. And it will all be to the honor and glory of God. Priests of God, go back this week. Read through this passage. See the great gospel work that God was doing centuries ago. See the, net, the narrative, the little narrative that, that reveals the meta narrative of God's great creation, fall, redemption story, and see your part in it. It's not like going to the movies, you don't just sit and watch. You're in the movie. You're in the story. And by God's grace, you'll be a priest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the glory of this narrative that was preserved for us, that we might know it today. That we might teach from it today and proclaim the gospel from it today. Holy Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not see themselves as an Eli or a Hophni or Phineas, that they do not see themselves as being so wretched they need a Savior, I pray that you would be gracious with them this hour, that you would reveal your infinite holiness, you would reveal the depth of their sin, and in so doing, cause them to repent and believe and follow Christ this very hour. For those who have been called into this holy priesthood, For those who are here that know your high priest, Jesus Christ, and not just know about him, but know him, I pray that you would strengthen us and embolden us and give us great courage to live as a faithful priesthood, to not contaminate the sacrificial system, to not engage in adultery, to not commit idolatry, but to press on toward the goal to win the prize was Christ. Father, cultivate in us a deep passion for you, a passion for your word, a passion for prayer, a passion for service, a passion for the gospel for the lost. Lord, make us bold in proclaiming the gospel to those in our mission field. Open our mouths, Lord, that we might proclaim your glories in the great work of Christ, that you might make many more priests That many more praising your name. I pray you would bless this church. Bless us with wisdom and knowledge. We might know you more dearly. Forgive us our sins. We know there are many. And lead us in paths of righteousness. For your name's sake. For your glory and for your honor. Both now and forever. In Christ's name. Amen.